The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. This is the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. And welcome to it. Six minutes after seven o'clock, the Monday night edition of the Employment Law Show. Good to have you along. And uh, we're going to continue. We got lots to get through here. Stan is our guy. He's uh, he's doing all the hard work. He's putting in the hours, and he's making a good show for you tonight. So in that regard, phone lines always open for your questions. It is four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred to uh, to call through. Whether it's about COVID nineteen, you know, getting vaccine for work. Do I have to get vaccinated? or any other employment law matter, you can use that one. Again, it's 416-870-6400. You know the number. We'll get to a bunch of emails tonight as well. That is help at employmentlawyer.ca. And any other time you want to reach out, you can use that email as well. All right, brother, take it away. What do you got going for the week that was? Yeah, good to, good to speak to you, John. Um, so in the week that was for this week, I wanted to discuss a recent case that had come out of Alberta. I found uh, particularly interesting and, and really applicable at this time. So uh, it's a case about a 47 year old engineer, John, who had been with this company for about six and a half years. And in April of 2020, as the pandemic was setting in and companies were, were really scrambling to try to figure out what to do, uh, this particular engineer's company decided to announce a cost reduction program that basically applied uniformly throughout the, uh, the company to all different levels of employee from, you know, from the lowest to management in different, uh, in different ways. But it was, a, it was a uniform cost reduction program throughout the entire company. And as part of that cost reduction program, this particular engineer had her salary reduced roughly by about $15,000, and the company suspended any contributions to her RSP which was also worth about $8,000 in total. Exactly 25 days after the implementation of that cost reduction program, John, uh, the company decides they're gonna implement a second phase of the cost reduction program. And this time they decide that they're gonna reduce the company's entire workforce by roughly 15%. And the, the individual in question, the engineer, lost her job as part of that reduction. And a really interesting question came up out of all of the, out of the scenario, which is, well, now that she's been terminated, but she's also had her wages reduced, how do you calculate her entitlements? You know, do you use the new the new reduced wages or, or do you use her original wage? And they ultimately brought this to court and the court found something, you know, which I think is fairly significant here. And it found that the actual reduction of the wage itself was a constructive dismissal, notwithstanding the fact that she never claimed that it was a constructive dismissal until after she was terminated, nor the fact that she was terminated you know, three weeks after this happened. It didn't even matter, John, that this was done during the pandemic, at right at the height at the beginning of this pandemic, when really nobody knew what the implications were. And, and it was acknowledged by the court that this was, you know, a, a cost-saving program that was necessary and, and understandable in the circumstances. 
Despite all those factors, the court still said that the company could not reduce this individual's wages unilaterally in the way that it chose to do, and that by doing so, the employee was actually terminated or constructively dismissed three weeks before the company officially terminated her. What this meant for the employee at the end was that her income and notice and payment in lieu of notice was calculated on the original non-reduced wage as opposed to the reduced wage of roughly, I think, about 10 or 15% that happened uh, at the time. And, what, and in all of this, the company or the court also considered you know, the circumstances at the time when determining how likely was it that this employee would find another job. And this 47-year-old you know, lower-level engineer with six and a half years of, no, uh, of service ended up getting nine months of notice from the court. And, and this is one of the first cases that really touches on these very difficult questions of what do these you know, steps that in normal times we would all tell you are clear constructive dismissal, uh, what do they mean in the context of the pandemic that's been going on since March of 2020? And, and this is certainly another strong indicator that the courts are not going to allow companies to use this pandemic effectively as a shield to try to shield themselves from the Im legal implications of the decisions that they're making at this time. Isn't it, uh, it to the contrary? I mean, doesn't doesn't COVID nineteen and the fact that so many people are out of work and lost jobs doesn't that go to bolster the amount of severance someone would get? Because part of the calculation for severance is the availability of work. So I mean, that would be much lower. That would actually increase the amount of severance, no? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what happened here, John. You know, it was uh, it was certainly an award that I would say is on the extremely high end of what this person would realistically expect. And that seems to have been a factor, really, you know, as you say, one of the main factors in determining what a person gets is what is the likelihood that they're going to find a job in the future. And, and there's no question that, you know, an individual's chances are significantly reduced right now than they would be, you know, two years ago, three years ago. You want to call through, you have questions about your employment, whether it's uh, COVID-19 related or otherwise, doesn't matter. The number 416-870-6400, 416-870-6400. And the email address we're going to uh, go to heavily tonight is help at employmentlawyer.ca. In that regard, um, Earl, first one up, says my employer wants to take away my bonus this year, saying that the company cannot afford it. Is the employer allowed to do this? Well, thank you for the question, Earl. And it's a it's a really interesting question, John, because bonuses are not something that it's a or is not something that's a uniform concept, right? Everyone has specific kinds of bonuses. Some are performance and metric based. We can tell, you know, specifically based on the criteria of the bonus, if you hit a hundred percent of your target or whatever that is, uh, you're going to get X amount in bonus. Other bonuses are more what we call discretionary based. You know, uh, oftentimes employees will tell me how they they would get a Christmas bonus from their employer around Christmas time of a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, uh, but always an arbitrary amount where it was never really understood as as a recurring payment like you would when you have a bonus plan that specifically talks about you know hitting targets and things like that. And, and that's an important distinction because when it, when it comes to the question of whether an employer can 
to reduce your compensation in terms of you know not paying you a bonus, it, it comes down to what kind of bonus are we talking to? If we're talking about a truly discretionary bonus, like uh, the Christmas bonus example, then yeah, you know that that type of bonus is really you know the idea being at the entire discretion of the employer that we don't consider part of the employee's compensation because it's too irregular uh, and and again not something that they can expect based on the, the nature and understanding of the actual bonus. Uh, and then there's the other type of bonus, which is something that's quantifiable and something that's based on hard data and metrics. And that type of bonus, it's you can't take that away just because the company cannot afford to pay it. Ultimately, if the individual hits their metrics, then they've done what they've promised or effectively been uh, attempting to do under the contract, and they've met the the trigger point for getting their bonus. So if you don't want to give that person their bonus despite them hitting their targets then that's essentially a repudiation of the employment contract and that would be a constructive dismissal you know it's, it's interesting though you mentioned the christmas bonus and i thought that's a great example what if uh, this individual or whoever has been re- receiving this christmas bonus for the last 10 years like clockwork the week before christmas they get their bonus and then this year the company says no we're not giving it out this year it's like christmas vacation i mean it's a do they have any recourse there, or is that still totally discretionary? No, I, I, a discretionary bonus, if it's if it becomes you know a, something that happens every year, you know the amount is set or certainly understandable, and the employee starts to expect it, and it's almost an understood or unspoken expectation between the employer and the employee that this is now part of their compensation, that they're they should expect to get this bonus every year, then the courts will look at that and say, well, that's no longer really discretionary. You know, now the employment agreement around this particular bonus has changed. And since both parties had some unspoken understanding that this was, you know, payable every year, that forms part of the compensation and can now be used to claim constructive dismissal if it's not paid. And that same thing goes, as you mentioned, for bonuses where it's, you know, normally paid out at a certain time of the year and the uh, employer decides to get cute and fire you a month before you would normally get that bonus or two months before you would normally get that bonus, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like the the case law around this is, you know, fairly recent as well. And it goes all the way to the Supreme Court with a recent decision. And, and it's abundantly clear. I mean, the courts have obviously seen through a number of examples how employers have abused this program and this type of discretionary power. And they've said that unless you have, you know, language that's almost uh, impossible to draft, in my opinion, because I still think we're all unsure how to really write bonus language that meets the court's stringent test, then you can't get away with just terminating a person and saying, oh, you know, you don't get the bonus because you didn't make, you weren't actively employed at the time of the payout, or you weren't here at the time of the payout. That language isn't going to save uh, a company from having to pay that bonus out, even if they terminate the, the employee, you know, a month or two prior. Really, it's a question of does the bonus payout fall within the notice period that this employee is entitled to? Because during that notice period, John, you're still considered, you know, on paper in some way to be an employee of the company, and you have the same rights that you would have as any other employee of the company, despite not being there. 
All right, good stuff. We'll get to our first break. It's a nice uh, table we have set in that regard. Welcome to it. You want to call through, ask a question about uh, your employment, possibly for yourself or a colleague. Maybe it's COVID-19 related, maybe vaccine related, whatever. Bring it on. 416-870-6400. 416-870-6400. We'll continue. Employment Law Show, Monday Night Edition, Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. Welcome back to the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. You bet. Welcome back. Stan Fainzelberger is here answering all of your questions tonight, doing a heck of a job of it. As always, it is 721. It is still early. You've got lots of time. You know that number, 416-870-6400 to call here now to the uh, the radio station and get some answers, ask some questions. You'd be helping others as well. Email address is help at employmentlawyer.ca. Ali, thank you for standing by on the phone. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourselves? Good, sir. What's uh, What's on your mind? Uh, yeah, so uh, the uh, the question is that uh, say after um, the start in July, uh, the uh, all the emergency leaves, infectious leaves, will be uh, ending as far as I understand. So uh, if someone is affected by the still by, by the pandemic, can they? Uh, is there a way to have that extended, or uh, will it change for them? Just want to get an idea of how that will all work. Well. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Ali, but uh, they've actually now extended the the emergency leave yet again, uh, this time to September 25th. I think this happened literally on Friday. So, and unfortunately, the regulations will not be expiring, uh, as we had all kind of been thinking on July, July 3rd. Um, yeah, they've been extended till September 25th. Okay. Okay. So there. So if someone decides to go on the on the leave, the jobs will be still protected, and uh, get all the benefits as well. With that. Well, if you're on if you're on an emergency infectious disease leave and you qualify for the leave uh, under the criteria, then yes, your job is protected under the ESA. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was. Uh, well, thanks for updating me on that. I wasn't aware of the new date, so appreciate that. No problem, Ali. Thanks, Ali. Appreciate that. You want to uh, call through uh, sometime uh, other when it's all done, maybe have a further chat with Stan. You can do that to 1-855-821-5900. Again, 1-855-821-5900. But still, that number uh, still set to go here. Lots of time. 416-870-6400. Bill, email is up next. Bill says, my boss told me that things are slow and he might need to lay me off. I've not been laid off before. And I know this is how he likes to get rid of people from the company. What can I do in this situation? Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot you can do, Bill. And most importantly, is to not really is to not accept the situation as is. Uh, your boss ultimately cannot lay you off unless you have a contract which which says that the company can lay you off. 
or unless you've been laid off before and you've effectively given the company the authority to do so. If that neither of those, then that's a constructive dismissal. Again, you know, it's the most fundamental aspect of the employment relationship that your employer provides you with work and you get paid for that work. And when one of those two conditions stops or if both stop at the same time, that, that's a breach of your employment contract and allows you to be compensated uh, severance. And it's, it's also one of those situations where Bill should not just uh, sit back and let this go and then come back to work because now it's been an implied term. And if it happens again, he's going to have fewer options, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely, John. Uh, just like many other conditions in an employment agreement, there's implied terms that can be part of that agreement. In the example you're giving, you know, if you've been laid off and you've come back to work and therefore you've given the company that authority to lay you off, well, then they can do it again because now it's part of the, the contract. Uh, an, another example that I often see is, you know, from the other side where the em employee does something wrong in their work or, you know, some, some sort of insubordination and the employee doesn't take any action or the employer doesn't take any action against the employee uh, or by issuing a warning or something like that. Well, you know, you've effectively condoned that behavior. You've told that employee that that's not, you know, actionable or disciplinable, uh, disciplinable offense, and you can't discipline them for that offense in the future if you've condoned it before. 416-870-6400. That is the number to call through. Ask your questions. Get some clarity. Lang is next on the email front here. Says, my boss is saying I have to take a vacation by the end of the year, but I would prefer to carry over my vacation to next year or be paid out for it instead. Uh, can my boss tell me when I have to take my vacation? The short answer, Lang, is that your boss absolutely can tell you when to take the vacation. Uh, the Employment Standards Act is very clear around this particular uh, matter. The employer is ultimately the one that gets to approve or dictate when an employee can take their vacation. Now, an employer does have to let an employee take their vacation sometime within the year, but for, for certain planning reasons, the employer is the one who ultimately gets to decide when that happens, in, you know, obviously in conjunction with the employee, but they're the ones who ultimately approve it. 416-870-6400, the number to call through here now. Any other time, by the way, you want uh, some information, even before calling Stan and his team, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. There is tons of information about all the things we talk about here on the show and uh, wrapped up into that as well is the severance pay calculator. That's a nice tool. Like literally hundreds of thousands of people have used that. It takes about 30 seconds, discovered what their severance should and could be if they uh, decide to pursue it and not uh, not give their uh, former, soon-to-be former employer a break. Again, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Jane says, uh, hey, Stan, I confronted my manager about a discrepancy in my pay, and they told me that I am wrong and don't know what I am talking about. What can I do about this? Well, if your employer is not going to act honestly with you and try to figure this out in good faith, you do have you know, a, a venue where you can go and have this adjudicated by someone who's not your employer, frankly. And the Ministry of Labor has a department that you can file what's called a wage complaint with that department. And they'll ultimately you know, hear your story, hear your out, see, see what evidence you have. They'll take that to the employer and actually tell them to provide a rebuttal, not just you know tell tell them they're wrong, but actually try to explain why the employee in this instance may or may not be wrong. Uh, 
and based on each side's evidence, based on each side's uh, testimony, that Ministry of Labor officer is going to make a decision. And if they agree with you, Jane, then you're going to get an order that says the employer owes you that money. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Again, if you want to reach out any time to Stan, you should do this. We always remind you that uh, you know matters like that are fine or overtime you're missing, et cetera, et cetera. Those are those are uh, well and good to reach out to the uh, Ministry of Labor. But when it comes to a severance question, a reminder, a severance question, do not go there. Do not file a claim. Go to Stan first. Call the number or it could get a lot worse. Absolutely. Yeah, because that's uh, they can't help you in that regard. And once you file a claim with them, you can't turn back, and then you can't seek out Stan's help. So that's never a good thing. So always go down that route uh, for sure. Roman is next up. Email address help at employmentlawyer.ca. I'm about to start a job with a competitor of my old employer. My contract with the old employer had a non-compete clause that said I cannot work for a competitor in Ontario for two years after my termination. How worried should I be about this clause? Well, John, I think there's really two ways to answer this question. You know, there's the the legal way and then there's the practical, realistic way. And what I mean is that from a legal perspective, based on what Roman's saying, that, that you know, that non-compete, that contract is very, very, very likely to be unenforceable. Two years is an extremely long time for, an, for a contract, your former employer, to effectively tell you you can't work in your industry. And the courts have been pretty clear in saying that anything approaching that period of time is not going to be upheld by, the, by them and not going to be enforced. So that's the legal answer. Now, from the practical, realistic perspective, the question is, well, how, the real answer is, well, how likely is your employer to do something about it? Right. Because whether you like it or not, you agree to that clause. That's now in a contract that you signed. And if you have an employer who's particularly vindictive uh, or, you know, who really, who, who really didn't like you for whatever reason, they can take legal action against you and file a claim. And now, even if that claim has very little merit, even if that clause is not going to be upheld in court, Roman's going to have to go and get a lawyer to fight that claim. And that's the real fear, I would say, to employees listening here when it comes to non-competes. It's not so much worrying about whether it's going to be enforceable, because really non-competes are meant for the highest levels of management of the executive branch of you know certain certain niche specialties who have really, you know, really confidential proprietary information that if released to a competitor or in the public could really hurt the company. That's what the non-compete is, is there for to protect against. It's not to protect against, you know, some low-level employee or some middle man, uh, manager who's deciding to jump from one uh, company to, this, to another in the same industry because they really can't hurt the, their former employers. And that's why it's not about, is it going to be enforceable? Is the, is the court going to help the former employer? It's about how, how much is your former employer willing to throw at this to make your life difficult? If you have, a, you know, the best thing you can really do is have a good relationship with your former employer on the way out and try to address this before you kind of advise, you know, before it comes to head, just to advise them, listen, I'm leaving, I'm going here. And uh, I want you to be aware of that. And most former employers will understand that. And they most will do almost nothing about it. 
especially one that's you know two years long province wide that's pretty extreme i mean and if you know if you could rewind Absolutely. the clock tell somebody now that you know going forward when you sign your next contract that is one thing you at least want to try and get negotiated out of an employment contract before you start is that not be? now that's that's totally different than a non-solicitation that one you don't want to mess with right yeah well a non-compete i mean i'm always of uh, two minds when it comes to thinking about negotiating on the non-compete because on the one hand you know i see a two-year non-compete and i tell any client that i have well that's not enforceable you don't have to worry about that right. but you know if you start negotiating is all of a sudden convert that from two years to three months well that, that might be enforceable now you you might have actually created a clause where your employer has the ability to keep you out of the workforce it's interesting. But again, the non-solicitation over that one, that's different, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the courts consider non-solicits to be a lot less restrictive than non-competes. You know, the main, you know, the main difference of one between a non-compete and non-solicit is that a non-compete says you can't go work for a competitor. A non-solicit, all it really says is that you can't solicit our employees or our uh, clients, meaning you can't actually try to steal them. Now, that's different than them deciding to come with you because at the sure. end of the day, no, no employer, no former employer can bind their clients from leaving, you know, doing business from anybody, with anybody. Uh, and that's oftentimes how you get around the non-solicit. Effectively, you know, the example I often give to people, John, is that me coming up to you and saying, hey, I'm going to work for ABC Corporation and I think you should come with me, client. Well, that's very clearly solicitation and that's a breach of the clause. But if I come up to you, John, and say, hey, I'm going to work for ABC Corporation, and you turn around and say, well, Stan, you know, tell me about it. Uh, is there any, any opportunities there or for myself or for my company? Well, well, that's you, you know, asking me for information, not me soliciting you, and you making your own choices in the marketplace. Want to reach out, 416-870-6400. That's the call through tonight on the remainder of this show. you still got some time, so that's the number, 416-870-6400. Back to another email, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Lily says, uh, I'm a salary employee but regularly work 48 hours a week. My employer keeps telling me I'm not entitled to any overtime, but I read that employees get overtime after 44 hours a week. Are salaried employees also entitled to overtime? Great question. Yeah. The, so when it comes to overtime, the distinguishment isn't about whether you're a salaried employee or an hourly employee or a commission-based employee uh, or a piecemeal worker. No, it's not about the way you get paid. There are certain exceptions when it comes to overtime. Uh, there are very few. The main ones are if you're an IT professional, uh, or if you're a manager, if you fall into one of those exceptions, and even with the manager, it's you know a manager doing no, uh, managerial work, or at least doing non-managerial work that's irregular. If you fall into one of those exceptions, then unfortunately you don't get overtime. Everybody else, generally speaking, will be entitled to overtime after 44 hours. Again, whether you're hourly or whether you're salary. Salary is really just a way of taking your hourly rate and multiplying it by eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, and you get your hourly rate extrapolated to be an annual number. That's all. That's the only distinguishment, really. And in fact, when you see a lot of salary people's pay stubs, there's an hourly rate listed right there. 
in the pay stub to show that you are, in fact, no different than an hourly employee. It's a good call. That's a good call. Again, help at employmentlawyer.ca is where you want to reach out through email. That's what we're using tonight for the show. And uh, Rishma, Rishma is up next, says, I was just terminated from the company because of a post I made on my personal Facebook account. The post had nothing to do with my work or company, and I don't understand how they can terminate me for this. Is it legal? You know, without knowing exactly what the post was or, or how she was terminated, John, it, it's, it's difficult to say exactly. But, you know, if we're presuming that she was terminated without cause, you know, the company saw the post and said, we don't want to be a so have this associated with our brand, you know, and they, and they paid her out her severance, a fair severance as she's entel- in, entitled because she went and looked at the severance pay calculator and, and it came to the exact number that her employer was giving her then yeah, there's unfortunately nothing you can do about that, Rishma. And this is just another example of the ways that I think employees have to be very mindful of their presence online. Because even if you're acting in your personal capacity, you know, you, there is no hiding online. Your name is associated with your company, often because of LinkedIn. You know, Everyone's got their LinkedIn uh, profiles done now that show exactly where they're working. And you know, you're commenting on Facebook, it doesn't take very long to go from your Facebook account to seeing your LinkedIn accounts to seeing who your employer is to to potentially taking action against your employer because of something you did. And rightly or wrongly, fairly or not, that's the you know the internet age that we're living in right now and people have to be mindful of that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, they always say you should be careful what you put on social regardless. But, I mean, if, if, if there's ever a situation where they can let you go for cause in that regard and not have to pay you severance, I mean, they can let you go if they don't like what you wrote. As you said, full severance, full pop, what you're supposed to get, adios. But what's the criteria if they want to let you go for cause when it comes to posting on social media? Well, I think, you know, it would have to – the post itself would have to either be a so offensive – that, you know, like if you were effectively uh, advocating terrorism or hate crimes or something like that, you, the company can say that that's just so intolerable that you're creating a hostile work environment, even outside the work, you know, outside the work environment itself. People are bringing that in. They, they notice it. They recognize it. And that that type of behavior, no matter where, can't be justified. Or potentially if you're saying things about your employer directly. If you're saying things about your employer, then, of course, you could be held liable for those by your employer. And if you're saying things they don't like, and especially if they're false or, or blasphemous, then, yeah, you could be fired for cause for those as well. And one other, I guess, example I can think of is that if you are a particularly high-level employee, such that really, you know, your brand and name is so intertwined with the company itself. Um one, one example I think of, you know, when discussing this is the, the former CEO of Papa John's, where he, I think on some sort of um, on a, uh, a, a teleconference for the company, he, he made use of some language, which I think was ultimately very offensive. And he was forced to resign by the board because of what he said. And again, because of just the simple association of Papa John, the individual with Papa John, the brand and pizza company. Robert, uh, you're up next. Appreciate you reaching out. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. Short one says, how much notice do I have to give my employer if I want to resign? 
Well, the short answer is, you know, it's either nothing because you, or it's whatever your contract says. If you don't have a contract and it doesn't say how much notice you have to give them, there is no legal requirement under the ESA to give notice for a resignation. But you want to be a cool cat, not burn any bridges. I mean, most people, you know, standard they give a couple of weeks generally if if they if they can, right? Uh, I mean, definitely, you know, from a purely relationship perspective, you don't want to just leave your employer in the lurch. You know, it's a it's it's a two way street ultimately. They they've you were there for a reason, presumably. You, they they hired you and they paid you, and so showing a little bit of good faith and. Uh, and an indulgence here is definitely the right way to go. And even more than that, John, there are certain instances where actually if you are, again, in a very critical position of the company, at a very critical time for the company, if your resignation could cause significant harm to the company, then you actually may have an obligation to give them appropriate uh, notice. Otherwise, there is a tort called wrongful resignation that an individual could be held liable for. 416-870-6400. You got a few minutes to go if you want to uh, reach out and ask uh, Stan a question. That would be no problem. Uh, I know we talk about employment contracts, how uh, how cautious you should be uh, about them and get them reviewed before you sign anything. Well, Tally is halfway there. She says, how much time should an employer provide an employee to get reviewed at that employment contract? You know, I wouldn't say there's a specific amount of time to provide an employee to review, it's more a question of, you know, providing them with a reasonable amount of time. And I think that will change in the circumstances. So, you know, giving a person a week in, you know, during a regular work week to, to go and see a lawyer and have that reviewed is probably reasonable. Giving a person a week to have it reviewed during the Christmas week when everybody's off and lawyers are probably spending time with their families not working is not reasonable. So. It's, again, not about the length of time, but I think giving them just a reasonable opportunity to go see a lawyer, to talk it over with a lawyer, and to, to, to understand what it says and make their own choices. Tiffany asks a simple question. I know it's a very common one, which is why we, uh, we love our emails and our listeners. says, is there a difference between notice and severance pay? There is definitely a difference between notice and severance pay when it comes to the Employment Standards Act. You know, under the act, that, those two things mean very different things. Uh, notice is actually giving somebody real notice, like, hey, you know, Tiffany, I'm telling you today that eight weeks from now your job is ending, and I'm giving you notice of that, and you should consider the next eight weeks to be working notice. Now, the flip side of notice, when employers don't want to give working notice, they provide pay in lieu of notice, or under the act, it's called termination pay. Now, severance pay under the Act is a, is a very specific term. It specifically to qualify for severance pay, your employer has to have a, a payroll of at least two point five million dollars, and you have to have been there for at least uh, five years. If you have qualified under those two criteria, then you're getting an additional week per year of severance pay up to a maximum of twenty six. Now, that's all under the statute. When it comes to you know the common law in court, we often use these terms interchangeably, and they they often end up meaning the same thing. And you'll see you know court decisions that say you know someone's entitled to nine weeks no nine months notice, and therefore their severance was X. And in that instance, they are effectively using the words interchangeably. 
So Tiffany, I mean, I, what I would say is that they do mean something very specific depending on the context. In a different context, they're basically the same thing. I think we'll get to uh, Stella's email here quickly. It says, I got terminated today, but I was told I have to stay around until the end of April, or pardon me, the end of June. Do I actually have to keep working uh, even though they fired me? Wow. Yeah, uh, this, this is what I was alluding to earlier when I was uh, answering Tiffany's question. Unfortunately, working notice is something that an employer is allowed to provide you with for, under the statute to fill, fulfill your entitlements. And that's Sounds like what's happening here to you, Stella, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but you do actually have to keep working and work out that period. If you don't, then you could be considered to have resigned and not may not be entitled to anything further after that period is done. And that email is the way we're going to wrap this sucker up for another night. Thank you so much if you uh, took some time just to type it out and send it to us. If we didn't answer it, Stan and his team will get to more. The email address moving forward, always help at employmentlawyer.ca. The phone number, 1-855-821-59 to reach out. And, of course, the website, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. We will reconvene on Wednesday evening at uh, close to 7 o'clock. Thanks for hanging out. Don't go anywhere. On point, Alex Pearson is coming right back. This is Global News Radio. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio.